there's a difference between like action and like critical action. By critical, I mean thinking critically. And by thinking critically, I mean challenging conventional wisdom. And by that, I mean just like reconfiguring our conception of the world because issues like race, well, any issue of equity requires radical thinking. Hello, dear friends. Welcome to Let's Give a Damn, the podcast that inspires and equips you to give more dams than ever before. I'm your friend and host, Nick Lapara. Again, welcome. My guest today is Tunde Wei, a Nigerian chef based in New Orleans. His work as a chef is focused primarily on racial inequality. Say what? Yes. He uses food to address systemic race issues in our country, and he does a damn good job at it. With names like Sartja, 444, Blackness in America, in 1882, you can immediately deduce that his pop-up restaurants are about much more than food. One of his projects even charges two different amounts, depending on whether the customer is a white person or a black person when they're purchasing the meal. You're going to love how Tunde processes through these issues. As we talked, I started to feel heavy, I guess is the word. These are hard topics that he's addressing and using food to address. I loved the answer he provided when I told him how I was feeling. I want to tell you all about his work right now, but more than that, I want you to hear all about it from him in his own words. So why don't I shut up and why don't we just jump right into my conversation with Tunde Wei, shall we? Hello, everyone. It is my pleasure to be back on the podcast with my new friend, Tunde Wei. Welcome, Tunde. What's up, man? So before we get into why you're even here in Nashville, I want to ask you about that. You're doing a pop-up here, and you, you've been featured in GQ and Washington Post and Food and Wine and all over the place. So we're going to get to all that, but, but let's go way back for a minute. Who are you? Where do you come from? Give us some kind of context for the people, places, and things that made you. So... Uh, I am Nigerian. I was born in Lagos. Uh, I moved to Detroit, Michigan when I was 16. I lived there until I was, um, well, until 2015. Then I moved to New Orleans. Okay. Yeah. Your family was with you in, in Michigan. Do you have siblings? Yeah. I have, uh, a brother, I have two brothers and a sister and I have my parents uh, my older brother and my older sister both live in Nigeria, and my younger brother lives in uh, the Bay Area, uh, specifically Oakland. Do you still go back often, or are you primarily here in the U.S. now? I haven't been back in 18 years. I had, uh, oh. uh, I still currently have um, visa issues. Ah, uh, yeah. So, would you like to go back? Hell yeah. 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 So if those things get corrected, you'd go back and visit or live? When those things get corrected, I'll go back to visit Yeah. for an extended period of time. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. So your life is all about food, correct? Uh, wrong. Wrong. <laughs> it's a, it's a I asked it that way on purpose. <laughs> okay. okay. Because good. if people look up, they're going to see like, oh, he's a chef. Yeah. He's this and that. But tell me, tell me where I was wrong and why. I mean, food is just like, food is just the conduit or the vehicle, vehicle to say the things that I think are important to say for me. 
And it's, it just happens to be the thing that I do that people take um, seriously because I have their attention and their ear or their mouths. Uh, I use food to, you know, express myself. What came first, your love for food? And then you decided, hey, I can also, I'm also passionate about these conversations. We can do both. Or was it, I really want to talk about these things and food can get me in front of people to do that. Yeah, it was a ladder, but it wasn't like a conscious mm. choice. It became more, it evolved into something more conscious after I realized what I was doing. Like, oh, I'm cooking and having these conversations. Then I be, I became more strategic. But yeah, food is, I mean, food has always been um, like the invisible um, foundation. And that's also what I think food should be, not just in my work, but in general. And my critique of like wider food culture has always been that food has has been elevated to this place where we can't where where we are blinded by all the things that made the food possible. Mm. All mm-hmm. of the systems that contributed to how we get the food to us are uh, have receded in, in, into the background and all we see is just what's on the plate. Uh, it, the way I think about food is sort of like, it's necessary, it should be delicious, but those things should be, uh, should just be a matter of fact and they don't necessarily have to be announced. Hmm. Is that an American thing or is that a modern kind of society thing? Because your, your roots are in Nigeria, my roots are in Guatemala kind of more, I guess, maybe more humble beginnings where there was more of a clear view of where the food came from, right? And so we thought about food differently, but you're right, how we in the U.S. are in kind of Western culture view, like we completely, we can separate what we see in front of us from the long journey and the the, the people and the abuses and the whatever. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it is an American thing. It's also uh, a global reality because the way i think the way food is consumed globally in certain contexts mimics this thing that i'm contesting this idea that you know all we care about is food and we care about just how food tastes and how intricate the dishes are and who made them as opposed to the social context that food exists in the politics around the food how much people get paid um how there is segregation in terms of the hierarchy of workers in a restaurant, mm. um, all the various sort of exploitations that create the food that we eat. These are the things that are, are missing, not just in America, but I think it may be in other places too. Wherever there is sort of capital and the motivation to maximize profits, mm, then sure. I think there is this aspect of commodifying um, things that are essential to community you're in nashville we're recording this in nashville you're here for a week or two and you're in nashville for a project or a pop-up called hot chicken shit um talk to me about that why why did you come here what is it all about it's not just hot chicken yeah um because this is going to give us this will segue us into us talking about other projects you've done um so let's start with this one since you're here for it right now yeah so um yeah there is a citywide temporary public art exhibition called Build Better Tables, which is ending at the end of of this month. And it was curated by a lady named Nicole Carruth. She is an independent 
um, curator who works nationally. And um, this exhibition was funded by the Metro Arts Council of Nashville. I'm, I'm not quite sure. Okay, sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And they hired um, Nicole to put together this exhibition. And so she selected, I was curating the work of nine um, artists from Nashville and around the country to use their work um, to talk about how food uh, impacts the city, uh, specifically to talk about the relationship between food and um, gentrification. So there are nine um, artists who are expressing or interrogating this question in different ways. So I'm one of those nine people. Got it. And my, uh, my, the project that I, I'm contributing to the exhibition is the series of pop-ups that I'm doing, which ended last night. That was the last one. Um, and basically, it is a critique of gentrification, a critique of you know conventional food spaces, which seem to be and are um, at the forefront of gentrifying um, communities. And it is also not just a critique, but a practical response to the absurdity of affordable housing or the lack of, of affordable housing in Nashville. And so the simple premise is I am selling, or I was selling hot chicken for uh, an inordinate sum of money. And we use the proceeds from the sales to purchase property that are then transferred to community land trusts. So they're kept in in and for community and they're held perpetually affordable. So this was the the premise. The the premise. Yeah. Yeah. And you you tweeted yesterday that Nashville project projects a deficit of thirty three thousand affordable housing rental units by two thousand twenty five. And it's correct, um, except I don't tweet. That was on Instagram. Sorry, Instagram. <laughs> sorry. Instagram. <laughs> Uh, I love Twitter. I mean, I love Instagram as well, but I love Twitter, so I always I don't use Twitter. Tweet. Like it's, it's confusing. I saw you on there. You're on there, but you don't use it. Yeah, I, I okay. don't use it. Yeah, I tagged I, you in a tweet today, in case you're wondering. I also lost my password like seven years ago, so, so I, just, I can't. I don't even know how to get into the account. Got it. Perfect. We won't. Tweet, so don't tweet at Tunde. <laughs> Instagram him. But you Instagrammed that. You know, it was a it was a picture of a kind of a construction site. There's a crane. That's an extraordinary number. Yeah. So you're here to raise awareness of what's going on. This is not exclusive to Nashville. No, but I think there is a heightened um, reality in Nashville. And this is what I've been saying, is that what maybe differentiates Nashville from other places that I've been is that the anecdotal reality or the anecdotal experience of gentrification is um, simpatical with the statistics so folks who are perceiving gentrification, that perception is backed by the reality, you know, that Nashville is um, gentrifying. In a lot of places, people experience or they feel like their communities are being gentrified, but the degree to which they are being gentrified is doesn't bear out in the um, larger um statistical trends in Nashville, it does. Yes. And so it's super real. Uh, but like you said, gentrification is, is happening, um, affects lots of communities of color when we're talking about gentrification in in cities. Um, just because of, of the way um, cities have been um, organized and also the history of their 
reconstitution over time. Gentrification is a loaded kind of topic. And people that are listening right now, I guarantee you some are thinking, but it's so good. Look what's happening. And we're getting this. And now I have that and all these things, right? And so it's not, it doesn't seem like a clear cut conversation. What, give me your, is there an upside so to gentrification? I think it's important to distinguish development from displacement. And when I talk about go. gentrification, I'm talking about the displacement of people from their communities because of what I'm what I call discriminatory development. And it's discriminatory because generally folks of color and um, low to moderate income folks are the ones that are displaced. Specifically, low to moderate income folks of color are displaced mm-hmm. by white middle class, upper middle class professionals in in cities that racialized and economic reality of gentrification is always fucked up yes always yes um but does that mean that it doesn't benefit some some people of course it does you know but that doesn't mean that it's still not fucked up yeah yeah i was driving around with a um a friend of mine a year or so ago and dude has a heart of gold amazing human just great great person but we're driving around his neighborhood and he pointed out um, some projects that were being torn down to put up nicer condos, right? And he was elated, mm-hmm. not because people were getting displaced, yeah. but because there'd be less crime and less homeless people. And like the way that he was, like he was thinking in his little, and I love the guy. Yeah. If he's listening to this and he puts two and two together and connects the conversation, <laughs> I love you. The point is, in his mind, in his worldview, he had figured out how to separate these two things. He's thinking, I'll have less people panhandling, less people coming to my door, less people doing this, less people doing that. Um, not at all thinking about the 70, 80, 100 families yeah. that lived in that complex that now, where do they go? Tell us, where do they go? Right? Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I don't know where they go. They go, they go, they get pushed to where they can afford, which is 20, 30 minutes outside the city. Yeah. Which is likely that it's not on a bus route anymore. So they lose their jobs. Yeah. They can't go to school any, like, you know, multiple things happen. Yeah. Which now sets them way back. Yeah. I really love the distinct, the distinction you made. I'm not sure I've ever heard anyone say it that way. And I've had lots of conversations about gentrification is there's a distinction that we must recognize. We're not talking about development here. We're talking about the displacement yeah. of people. Which is driven by development. Which is driven by development. Yeah. Is there a way to do it right? Uh, I think so. I don't know if, because the way to do it right is is connected to other things. And even, I, I think to do it right, you have to have a systemic approach. It's complex for sure. But yeah, you, you need a systemic approach. You need to, you know, address transportation you need to address education you need to address i mean the the biggest thing i think is wealth yeah you know because there's also a deficit of market rate housing you know a, a projected um deficit we're talking about about 20,000 units now that is unfortunate for folks who um don't have access to that um housing but the sort of um, misfortune there is in my mind and i could be wrong one of inconvenience as opposed to one of like serious 
uh, consequence, mm. right? If you have a vehicle, if you have a good job or good enough job, if you even maybe can work um, um, remotely, uh, if you have educational class privilege, then you're being inconvenienced when you can't find housing because you're not going to be um, destitute. Probably your commute is going to be longer, but you're, yep. you're commuting in your own vehicle. Yep. So this problem affects different strata, but the consequences differ in each socioeconomic group. And I think the consequences are a lot more dire when we're talking about low to moderate um, income folks. So um, let's talk about a couple of the other projects you've done. One in particular, um, there's multiple projects that you've done on your, your website that I would love, I mean, talk about all them or a couple of them. But I specifically want to get into the one that you did in uh, New Orleans. Honestly, like when I was reading about it, I was like, this is blowing my fucking mind. Like I, it felt so right and so counterintuitive all at the same time. And that's exactly what you're trying to do, where you essentially charge two different prices. Yeah. Right. So tell us about that. Because I think it's going to resonate and maybe piss off some people that are listening, but also resonate with so, so many. Sure. I think my recent projects, uh, um, if there was a guiding or grounding question to acclimatize folks to the ideas behind the projects, it would be, how do you think wealth and poverty are created? And depending on your answer, you know, you are either predisposed uh, or not to the projects. So I would start off like in New Orleans, well, nationally there's a income and wealth disparity. And this exists along racial lines and along um, gender lines. Uh, so we know about the, the gender um, pay gap, for example. In New Orleans, uh, racial income gap is about one and a half times so white folks, so, and this is a, the pay gap between white and black folks. So white, white folks, I think, uh, white folks make about, let's just say like 1.2 times more than black folks. Mm. And so this is just a wage. A wage just happens to be what you earn in a particular accounting period, a calendar year. You know, wages are important, but they're not, they not as transformative as wealth, right? So mm. you could be wealthy and still not make a lot of money. Sure. But you could make a lot of money and not have wealth. And the definition of wealth really, at least my definition is, your ability to withstand um, unexpected emergency and your ability to take advantage of um, unexpected or, or forecasted opportunities. And so it speaks to your um, resiliency and your, just your, your general financial um, viability. So wealth is the key factor that decides how financially um, viable um, people are, not mm -hmm. your income. So there's a, you know, let's say 1.25 difference in- uh, Wages. Well, in wages, in wealth is 10 times. And that number wow. I know. So uh, African-American families have median net worth of about 17,000. White families, it's 170,000. And wealth has a exponential or network effect, right? So if you, because of how we are organized um, socially, if you're wealthy, you tend to be around more unwealthy people. If you're not wealthy, you tend to be around people like you. And so if you, if you have 
uh, a net worth of $17,000, you're probably in a community of folks with the same um, net worth. Mm-hmm. And so there are folks who are relying on your money as well as you relying on them, right? So you don't have enough for yourself, uh, but other folks who are in an emergency are also reaching out to you, your family, your friends that you have to take care of with the little wealth that you have. If you are white and then you, you have this $170,000 in wealth, you know, then you also have this access. Your, your wealth is, is amplified because you have other people with this sort of wealth and you can take advantage of opportunities. You can start a business. Uh, you can, you know, uh, pay for your kid's college. And both of these circumstances perpetuate themselves. So wealth engenders more wealth and a lack of wealth creates the same scenario. And so, you know, this took me like, what, 10 minutes to explain? Sure. So to do this, to sort of like highlight what this is, I decided to um, serve lunch. And for the same box of lunch, there was a base price of $12 for lunch. If you were white after a conversation where I would ask you basically how you thought wealth was created um, and then how you thought you had benefited from the creation of wealth, which happens through the expectation of other folks, then I would present you the choice. Like this meal is $12. You can pay 12 or you can pay, um, I think it was $30, which reflected the wage um, disparity. And then what I did was I took the net profit for the month-long um, pop-up, which is basically the surplus that I got from white folks. And I asked black folks and other f- folks of color if they wanted uh, money back. So after you paid for your lunch, I asked you if you were a person of color, would you like some money back? If you said yes, then all of the net proceeds would be split among all the people who said yes. And so that way we're like transferring um, resources it was a very visual picture of yeah. the transfer so how many people this will be interesting maybe i'm not looking for exact numbers but general how many white people about 80 percent. they paid the 30 yeah that's way more than i thought yeah and then how many people of color that you said hey do you want some money back how many I, of them i think about 75 percent turned it down the same number who paid Reverse. yeah turned it down why what did that tell you well first of all like it wasn't a lot of money to pay for lunch you know to get an experience right. yeah first of all yeah and then yeah this wasn't showing up to uh, whatever mcdonald's or something to get a meal like it was an experience yeah uh i mean folks didn't know that that was happening until they got there most folks didn't know but what i'm saying is that like after you'd heard what was happening and usually and this was what i think was important is that before i gave you the choice, I would engage in a conversation. And, you know, I would ask you, like, again, like, how do you think wealth was created? Um, do you know what the racial wealth disparity is? And, like, and folks would be like, yes. How do you think it came about? And folks would be like, well, it's institutional racism, Jim Crow, segregation, redlining, all of that stuff. Of course, slavery. And contemporary um, discrimination, too, create, creates this problem. And I'm like, okay. So um, do you see yourself as a beneficiary of the system? And I'm, I'm, I'm talking to two white folks now, and they'll say yes. And I'm like, well, how have you benefited? I'm like, well, my parents pay for college for me, and I don't have any student debt. You know, I had access to a vehicle, and so um, mm. I could go to school without worry, like all, all of these things. So basically, like, I created this framework where I outlined what the problem was, and I situated the customer in 
the problem as an antagonist and then I give them a choice. Like, what are you willing to do? You, you just admitted to all of this to me, a black man. Uh, what are you willing to do? And there was an easy out. You could just say, well, I'll pay the 30. And so I feel like this is the framework that allowed people to pay. And so that's why I think it was... It was yeah, at high. that point, at that point in the discussion, you're kind of yeah. an asshole if you don't pay the 30. Exactly, exactly. So, so positive social pressure. Yeah. Not only are you an asshole, but there's somebody holding you responsible for all the things that you've just said that you believe in. Yeah, right. I think it may have been different. Here's something you can do right away. Exactly. It may have been different if, uh, you know, you had to make the choice separate from uh, this figure that was holding you responsible. If you had to go to another kiosk and make a payment and then take your food and never see me again, maybe it would have been different. You know? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes that positive social pressure is good. It's key. It's key. Yeah. So you've done other things like this, right? You did Nashville, like uh, chicken shit. You've done what was this one called? S double A R T J. S double A R T J. Blackness in America, 444, 1882. What were those briefly? What were those projects about? Um, 444 was about this was dinners around um, wealth. I mean, the, the question that motivated that dinner series was can so like capitalism has been used to subjugate uh and exploit black folks and other minority groups can it be used for their their um, liberation as well so that was what that was about 1882 was um an immigration dinner series yeah that's what it was about like yeah. talking about anti-immigration sentiment i think in the wake of the trump presidency i'm beyond thrilled once again to partner with my friends at goodwell co as you know i'm very picky about who i partner with but this was an easy one you see billions of plastic toothbrushes are bought used and thrown away each year only to end up in some landfill somewhere the mission of Goodwell Co. is to create 100% natural, subscription-based, sustainable products, systems, and technologies that raise environmental awareness and empower people to make choices to help them protect and preserve the planet today. Their products are 100% biodegradable and 100% compostable. You can buy their toothbrushes, their toothpaste, or their floss as one-time purchases, or you can sign up for their amazing subscription service. Also, you need to check out and pre-order B, that's B-E, the world's first battery-free, electricity-free powered toothbrush. That's right. They created and have patented an amazing technology that requires no batteries or electricity. Pre-order now and you'll get yours once they ship in early January of 2019. So listen up. I have an exclusive deal for all Let's Give a Damn listeners out there. Go to thegoodwellcompany.com and all these details will be in the show notes. Go to thegoodwellcompany.com, use the discount code DAMN in all caps, D-A-M-N in all caps, and you'll get 10% off a one-time purchase or 15% off when you sign up for a subscription. But both discounts apply only on your first purchase. Remember, use the code D-A-M-N in all caps when you check out to get this special deal. Through and through, Goodwill Co. is focused on making amazing products and honoring the environment in the process, and I love them for it. Don't miss out on this super deal, friends. Okay, back to my conversation with the wonderful Tunde Wei.
I was about to ask if, and I don't, we don't have to get into anything too deep politically speaking, yeah. but have these conversations been harder, easier, different since November of 2016 or even before that during the I think they've been the same, but what was interesting was like I was traveling around hosting dinners and I had a dinner in Los Angeles the day after Trump was elected and it was a somber event and folks were just Oh sure, yeah. yeah I can imagine. Like, you know. And it was most it was mostly folks of color, you know, who felt like things were going to be different. They have been in a sense, but they've also um, remain the same too. Uh, but I think, like, I am, you know, I guess my politics would be liberal. Um, but I think when it comes to issues of wealth and race generally, the folks who identify conventionally as liberal uh, or as democratic or as progressive and the folks who identify as conservative, in my mind, occupy the same space sure yeah because there isn't any there isn't a uh doesn't seem to be an investment in like revolution or in like uh a paradigmatic shift and so i'm i mean i am concerned with electoral politics but i also feel like there is a very consistent ideology that animates both democrats and republicans if someone's listening if someone, I hope people are listening. People are listening. <laughs> but if someone's listening and says, I want to use food in the same way that Tunde is, but they don't have, they're not you, they don't have your skill set, they've not been featured in, and they probably won't be featured in, you know, GQ or food and wine or whatever. Like, what are some easy steps people can take? Can they do what you're doing Hell yeah, they can do in their neighborhoods? Me. And how would you recommend they start, like that first step? Because that's, the, the, the reason I started this podcast was precisely because people are too scared yeah. or they don't know they don't know that first step i'm always trying to get people take the first freaking step like yeah. that's where it starts so in this particular conversation we're having how can people take that first step toward having that conversation in their neighborhood in their community i think they just do i think they just take the first step have I, a meal yeah i believe in i i believe in action and learning simultaneously simultaneously on the job training yeah. as it were uh or i mean it's good to also like Get trained before you um, you get the job. But I, I'm saying that, you know, taking the first step is important. But you also, that has to be combined with um, part of the steps that you have to take are educating yourself, you know. And maybe maybe you start that. Maybe that is the first step. Like, just educate yourself um, about whatever issue it is that you are concerned with. And then do, and do something. I mean, I, I didn't come out of my mother's. Um, belly on the on the New York Times. No, you know, um, yeah. I mean, all of this is just all of this happened to happen because of what I was doing, and those things are only valuable because they just they allow me to keep doing what I'm doing. Yeah, and so yeah, like you said, people just have to do something. But I just want to say that there's a difference between like action and like critical action. By critical, I mean thinking critically, and by thinking critically, I mean challenging conventional wisdom and by that i mean just like reconfiguring our conception of the world because issues like race well any issue of equity requires radical thinking all that means is that 
is that you just have to cross to the other side completely and be a different person. And so, you know, I don't believe in getting, you know, the way to have racial, for example, as as one example, the way to have equity in terms of ra- of race uh, relations is to get a multicultural room together and have people laugh. I think you have to get sure. to the hard problems. In one case, it's you're white, you're black, you have resources as a white person that are the product of centuries of exploitation and you have white privilege and we have to address that. That's like, those are the conversations that need to happen. And they can happen in a, in a variety of ways, but they have to start with what I think is true, which is the facts. And it may not always be kumbaya, you know? Most of the time it probably... So that leads me really into my next question, which was around, like, not... I don't like this term, but self-care. So you, you, you're obviously... You're asking a lot of hard questions. Yeah. And you're probably being, you know hit back with either blank stares or a lot of hard answers or you just you you didn't pick an easy like this is not always fun work to ask these hard questions around food and it doesn't seem like you're going to stop anytime soon so how do you as a damn giver in in this food question asking career that you've chosen how do you take care of yourself how do you make sure that you can do this 40 years from now and not have given up along the way because it's not you're not going to fix it in the next forty years. These are yeah. questions that are going to you know uh, going to keep coming up for, forever. They're going to outlive forever. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. So how do you make sure? I also don't want to like pretend like I am some sort of moral person who's doing this because I give a damn. You know, like I I care about these issues because I'm not an activist. You know. Um, there are people who actually are activists who do this work day in and day out. I care because uh, to me, this is just like, it's just common sense, you know? And it, it also feeds me like it's selfish. Like, it's very selfish. Like I do this work because I get to, I get to challenge conventions that I think are um, ridiculous. Sure. Uh, and so it's, it's actually like personally f- fulfilling for me. Yeah. Um, I, I'm I'm not on a moral crusade. This is to me. This is beyond uh, morality. Um, it's just about the things that I think are important to see. Um, and I'm not doing this for anybody. Like when I talk about affordable housing, like I, I don't in my mind I don't have a vision of some poor person who needs my help. That's not how sure. I, yeah. I, I, continue. I I just I have a certain set of talents and resources that happen to be the currency that is maybe valuable in this in this um yeah particular um context and other people have a different um currency that is valued differently but i still look at those currencies objectively as currency and um i'm, I'm using mine to create equity not because I, I just think it just makes the most sense yeah. i don't yeah. know why but that's just what i what i feel so i'm not uh trying to save anybody at all like i'm just trying to help myself i'm trying to i'm trying to do things that give me energy and power and make me feel content and i'm saying that not to discount whatever benefit accrues to other people i'm just saying that i don't think i have i don't conceptualize myself as uh someone who's helping anybody because i don't think people need help in the sense that i I just think that 
we value things, we have, we have different values or we have values that value people and things differently. Sure. Uh, and that I just happen to be in a, just by, by luck and by context, I happen to be in a, in a position where some of the things that I happen to have are valued differently. In a, in a different context, my currency could be meaningless. You know, I'm not quite sure if that makes any sense. Yeah. But anyway, to answer your question about um, self-care, I play soccer, I watch Netflix, I sleep a lot, uh, I eat. Um, those are the things that I do. I just take a lot of time. Like this project is over and I'm, it's been on my mind for the last like three months. It's done. I mean, there's still more work to do, um, you know, to sort of create the solution that um, sure. will come from this. But I'm going to go home for the next like, week or so. I'm just going to be in bed. I'm going to be watching Netflix. I'm going to be playing soccer. Recharge. Yeah. So that's what I do. I just take well, I, you know, I want to go back to real quickly, not to push back on anything you said, but I definitely don't want to set anybody up on this pedestal. Of, you know, I don't have you on or Chelsea Clinton on or anyone else on that I've had on to say like, look, the, they are morally superior. They are better than you. Right. Like I don't want to do that. But I also think what you described is, I mean, there is some selfishness in everything we do. Like it's because I want to see something happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I think it's good that you even pointed out, like, I'm not trying to save anybody like that to me, actually how I define giving a damn that defines it pretty well is that you're not going in there as this moral crusade or saying like, I'm going to fix this thing and I'm going to do this. And I'm hoping that I can get on more publications so that I can get, no, like you're just doing it because like you said, I think you described it perfectly. You said it makes sense. That's yeah. why I'm doing it. Yeah. Right. Cause it makes sense for me to do this. Yeah. But I do want to get on more pu- publications because like that gives me no, totally amount of power that I need to do the stuff that I want to do. Like ultimately I'm doing all this shit so that I can be free. Like I want to be free. I want to be free. Um, like I'll, I'll give you an example. I I went. Like I don't make a lot of money. I think I make last year. I made like twenty three thousand mm. uh, dollars. And my wife makes more money than me, so she she so like supports stuff. But anyway, I went. I had to do uh, some tests, uh, some medical tests, and I I went there and you know I was prepared to pay some money, but I filled in my income information and they charge on a sliding scale and based on my income, they charge me nothing. And I got like, I got my test done and I'm like, this is exactly how things should be. Yeah. You know, like yeah. we, we, people should have access to the things that they need yes. when they need it. And not because of if they have the resources, because like there's such a concentration of, of wealth and, and, and resources. And so the problem isn't that we don't have resources, it's that they're just, distributed unevenly yep. and so the work that I'm doing and I haven't made money doing my work for a long time but I remember just being frustrated because I was broke and I'm still kind of broke but not as much as before and I you know talking to my wife and we're talking about like about um, finances and you know we get to this place where well when are you going to start making money with your work and there's this um, line uh, by Chance the Rapper in one of his songs that I just kept replaying in my head is like I don't rap for free. I rap for freedom. Freedom, yeah. And I'm like, that's what I feel like. I don't cook for free because I, I was cooking for free. I cook for freedom, like to be to be free. And part of being free is for me is having, is not being at the mercy of anybody and other people's whims. And to the extent that 
that is a universal reality, then I'm then I'm free to the extent yep. that I can walk into a clinic and get tests that um, cost as much as I can pay. Then I have the freedom yep. to indulge myself in projects and work that I find personally uh, I'm satisfying. So, yeah, this is all. This is a lot about me and my ability to thrive as a person. Let's begin to uh, wrap this up. I've got a, a question that I ask at the end of every conversation. I ask the same question to every guest. The scenario goes something like this. Someday you're going to die. That's a, a fact. Everyone's going to die. But there's the hypothetical part is that I've been asked to give your eulogy. And so everybody that loves you and that you love, all the people, tons of people that you've influenced and cared for throughout their lives, they're all there to both celebrate and mourn your passing. As I get up to give your eulogy, what do you hope that I would say about your life and your legacy? Would you know me or no? Yes. Okay. So in this scenario, <laughs> okay. I'm someone that does know you, right? But but it's hypothetical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but I've been asked to get up. Yeah. So knowing what you know, basically what I'm asking is, based on your vision for your life yeah. and what if you live a full and happy life to 80 yeah. or 90 and I get up to give your eulogy, what would it sound like? I would want folks to say like, there's this guy, he just like struggled with a bunch of things personally. And then, you know, and that along the way he figured out how to satisfy himself and the things that made him happy um, without being destructive. But even beyond that, creating value for other people mm. for the, no, for specifically for people who I love know and care about those mm. are the people that mean something to me to be honest like yeah. friends family that I I somehow satisfied myself and satisfied other people at the same time yeah I think it's huge that I, that I, that I satisfied myself and I didn't sacrifice myself but I also didn't sacrifice other people for myself and it was this a balance and a harmony in the value that I created personally and publicly. Yeah. yeah. I think it's beautiful because you are your biggest asset, right? Like you, your body, your soul, I like love everything. Me. Yeah. I mean, like if you don't take care of yourself, then you won't be around in 60 years. Yeah. That's just the, the, the hard truth is that if you don't do things that make you happy and fulfilled while, you know, the, the hopefully the overflow is that people are helped and they feel cared for as well. But if you don't do that well, yeah, then you won't be around 60 years from now. Absolutely. Still, still rocking and rolling. So last question, what do you want people to go look for? This could be, you know, your, your website or your social media links. Like how can they keep up besides oh, yeah. Googling tuned away? Like how can they keep up with my Instagram is like a, I guess a good way, it's, it's kind of personal. I just do, it's personal in the sense that I just put up random things that I'm thinking about and I also put up my work on that. But it's at F-R-O-M underscore L-A-G-O-S at from underscore um, Lagos. Lagos. Yeah. Perfect. And your your website is similar. It's just I from Lagos. Even, dot, yeah. Are you well, still keeping that up? or? Yeah, I'm keeping it up. But each project has... A it's different own. website. Yeah. So, but they can get them there. I think if I remember, like maybe can, I haven't updated that from Lagos website actually. So, but yeah, perfect. You can you can get them there eventually when I. So the quickest way, and I, you just posted yesterday. So the so the kind of way to keep up in real time is your Instagram. Yeah. And there you'll tweet about your, your you'll Instagram about your projects. Projects. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, 
Tunze, thank you so much for joining us and for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for sharing your story and some of the things that you're up to. Thank you very much for having me, man. I appreciate you. Let's give a dammers. Thanks for tuning into my conversation with Tunde Wei. I hope you feel encouraged and inspired to think more deeply about these issues and how we can use everyday things like food to communicate important messages about hard topics. Don't forget to head to thegoodwellcompany.com. That's thegoodwellcompany.com. Use the discount code DAM in all caps at checkout to get 10% off a one-time purchase or 15% off a subscription purchase. Per usual, show notes for this conversation can be found by visiting podcast.letsgiveadam.com. This podcast was edited by the amazing Chad Snavely, and we have an incredible conversation with Craig Newbar coming at you next week. That's right. I talked with the founder of Craigslist, and it was a fantastic conversation with a wonderful, damn-giving human. You won't want to miss it. Same day, same time next week. See you then.